Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to talk about the Dhamma. I'm going to be answering questions, if there are any questions. So the session is mostly made up by you, the listeners. If you have questions, post them in the chat. We'll spend the first 15 minutes collecting questions, so feel free to just post them when, whenever you want. And you can post questions later as well, but by 15 minutes we'll have a good start if people have questions. So and also the first 15 minutes is an opportunity for us to cultivate mindfulness. So before you ask your questions, you might want to spend some time clearing your mind, creating the clarity and the presence of mind that will allow you to discern uh, an important question from an unimportant question. Buddha said, be the ability to see what is essential and what is not essential. We're only interested in questions that are essential essential to your spiritual health and well-being and progress towards enlightenment and freedom from suffering. So we get started bringing our minds back to the present moment, pulling them out of whatever conceptual uh, conceptual jungle we found ourselves in untangling the tangle and bringing our minds back to the present moment. We do this, uh, but the practice that we outline in our booklet on how to meditate, if you haven't read that, that might be a good start. So we'll do walking or sitting or walking and sitting. And you just try and Focus the mind on the actual experiences as opposed to your interpretations or reactions or the meaning you make of them. Just focus on the experiences themselves. We'll do that until 15 minutes after the hour, and at which point I will come back and begin to answer questions.
All right, that's 15 minutes. So again, if you have any questions, now is the time to post them in the chat. If you don't have questions, we can just sit mindfully. Once you've asked your questions, well, just sit mindfully. Take this opportunity. Life is short. Let's spend at least a little bit of our lives cultivating mindfulness, developing positive mental habits to alleviate the stress and suffering that comes from clinging and craving and reacting and judging. Just try and be and see. So if you have questions, post them in the chat. Everything else we ask, um, well, we're just going to remove it from the chat. So only questions in the chat, please. Thank you, Bhante. There are a few questions. During every sitting session, I experience a state where it feels like I am in an ever-expanding void and it draws my attention. Should I come back to the breath or note this experience and how? So it would usually throws people off is the details and so i start i'll start there and remind you that uh, mindfulness is uh, about uh, let, ignoring about um dismissing the details the buddha explicitly said to not grasp at the details and the particulars and the meaning behind the experiences so what your experience is experiencing is a feeling the rest of it is is inconsequential the details of what it feels like so the only important part of what you've said is not to criticize it i mean this is a natural mistake that it's a natural uh, behavior that we're trying to change what's important is i experience a state where it feels that's all we need so you experience a state where it feels meaning i mean a better way to put it would be a feeling arises an experience of a feeling arises that's all we need there there actually is no more information that you should be concerned with that's important i mean that's the whole point the whole point is to be focused on the actual experience because what it feels like is not actually truth that's interpretation for someone else it might feel like something else because they're association making in their mind is different but it's all association making you say it feels like x because of the way your mind works in terms of associating one thing with another thing that's just the natural way of mind but that's not the experience that's something extra so we change that and when we feel something we focus on on it as a feeling it's kind of disappointing sometimes because you think you had some special kind of feeling it felt like this and this is a pretty awesome thing but this is not consequential it's, it's not real so uh, the, the, the important shift that you need to start making is to see feelings just as feelings. And when you feel something, you would just say to yourself, feeling, feeling. Quite simple. I mean, you can also note your reactions to it. So if you like it or don't like it, note that as well. I mean, you should note those things. Those can also be present. 
if you're confused about it, that sort of thing. You can also note that, of course. But try and note whatever it is until it's gone and then come back to the rising and falling again. After doing mindfulness meditation for some time now, I've noticed that I'm becoming more and more naive, along with the happiness, resulting in me being unable to deal with others and get taken advantage of. Should I quit meditation altogether or be alone more often? So meditation doesn't make you more naive. We've addressed, I've talked about this recently. Um, it makes you less concerned, but... You don't have to mis you shouldn't mistake that for naivety. You're not naive if you know what's what's going on. I mean, mindfulness helps you have a bit greater clarity, but you may not be as concerned, and you may not, as a result, pay attention. But that's not important because you're not concerned with loss or gain or or change or or pleasure or pain, and so it doesn't concern you what people's machinations are if they want to take advantage of this or of that, but they cannot make you uh, break. They can make you bend, and that's the problem with being around people is they become tiresome, not that they take advantage of you. They're taking advantage is just bothersome, tiresome, useless, pointless. It's um, draining, if nothing else. And so, yeah, being by yourself, of course, would be the, the preferred way unless you can be around people who are not unwholesome in this way, then the best way is to, of course, be alone. But, you know, obviously I'm not going to tell you to give up meditation. And again, I don't think it's the meditations that's causing the harm, it's the people. And, you know, it's more harmful to uh, be paranoid or, or on edge, not necessarily paranoid, but on edge about people manipulating you and defensive and fighting with people and getting upset with them when they try to manipulate you and and, and having to fight fight them off you know that's just uh, creates bad habits of antagonism and aversion anger ill will spite all, all sorts of things that are drain even more draining than being patient with such people Although I try to work on my mindfulness, I'm still dealing with a lot of hatred, ill will, and bad intentions. What can I do? Well, you're already doing it. See, the, 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 the first and really the most important, let's say the thing you're to focus on in mindfulness, um, is not getting rid of bad things. It's about changing your perspective on them. So your, your phraseology here, I mean, I don't know you or your practice, but it sounds like you're starting to get it the way you phrase it. You're not saying, I still get angry, I still hate, I still have bad intentions. When you say you're dealing with them, that's the kind of statement that is encouraging because it says that you're starting to see them not as you, but as like afflictions. Like really just, uh, the Buddha said, they're, they're uh, like unwanted guests. Akantuka, the Buddha called them. The, that the mind is pure, but it is assaulted by these uh, visiting things. I mean, more accurate would be these things arise, but that's all they are. And saying that you're dealing with them and that your uh, practice or your efforts are not 
allowing you to control them is also a very good sign. You're starting to see that things are not under your control in the way you expect them to be. You expect to be able to just turn things off or fix things or that sort of thing. And seeing that you can't do that is a part of the much deeper work that can take longer, but is is far more sustainable. And that's the letting go. The letting go, which of course um, is the antithesis to hatred, ill will, bad intentions. So you have to get to that point where you let go, which unfortunately means having to see, having to face, having to be patient. So letting go isn't about making go away, right? Letting go doesn't mean it doesn't arise. Letting go means when it does arise, you don't react to it. And so that's what you're working on. It sounds like you're on the right path, but it's when people get on the right path for the first time, they they start to wonder why it's not working, you know, why something more isn't happening. Because your expectation is that it should fix things. And that's not how it works. It, it fixes your mind by causing you to stop reacting, stop judging, stop needing to fix and needing to change. Which, of course, you know, ill will, hatred, all of these things are a need to change, right? A need to fix. That's what gives rise to hatred, ill will, and all that. You want to get rid of you want to destroy you want you know that that they're they're the bad habits so wanting to get rid of them is only going to make it worse that's hence the word mindfulness or the idea behind just seeing things as they are and trying to change your perspective see them more clearly so that you start to let go and, and stop needing them to change In a meditation session, what percentage should I devote to rising, falling, sitting, touching the parts of the body versus the simple rising, falling observation? Well, I mean, if you're doing a meditation course, you should do whatever exercise you were given last. But outside of a meditation course, you can decide for yourself. I mean, if your focus is good, you just do everything you were given, but if it's not very good, you might want to start with something simpler. You don't devote percentages of, of a session to one or the other. Try and decide where you're at and work on that and slowly increase until you're doing what you were given. But if you're Again, if you're in a course, you should always be doing the last exercise you were given. How do we engage in a wholesome way with the outside world when we limit our experience to mindfulness practice and noting our experiences? Well, the truth is that the outside world is only your experiences. It's only the, or sorry, it's only the objects of your experience. The outside world is only seeing here. It's only light, sound, smells, tastes, feelings, and. Uh, that's about it. That's the only outside world that we uh, ever engage in. We don't actually engage in, in in any other anything else as far as being an outside world. The rest of the outside world is not real. It's conceptual. It's when you see something and then you you interpret it, and that interpretation is the outside world. It's, it doesn't actually exist. It's just the mental con- constructs that come from seeing. So. In fact, um, 
being being practicing mindfulness and noting our experiences is the best way to learn the truth and then then to become more familiar with the nature of the outside world in a way that allows us to confront any situation to be invincible imperturbable unshakable because no matter what experience we might have it's always just going to be a, a sight a sound a smell a taste a feeling or a thought so it doesn't quite answer your question i mean i guess i can entertain because if you're talking from a conceptual point of view like how do we do good deeds or so on it's really just an extrapolation um, i mean none of those are things are hard to do it's not hard to we've already learned all of the concepts and constructs around us so engaging with other people we speak the same we speak languages and we understand people and places names of things and that sort of thing so the mindfulness is the like the quality of it so the, the our mind being clear and pure means that all of those interactions that we used to have become changed because of the underlying purity and and the underlying familiarity and connection with reality so if we're in a conflict with someone we understand what's going on for real that there's not actually a person there's just an experience and there's reactions and we're able to react in ways that are skillful appropriate wholesome so i would say our engaging with the conceptual world is far more wholesome i mean it it becomes purely wholesome when you're mindful you have said that fear is mental but the thought may last a few seconds and the physical reaction lasts longer. So, after noting the thought of fear, I move my attention to the body reaction. Do you have any advice? No, that's fine. I mean, you don't have to spend all your time on the body reaction. It's good if you note it a few times, but you may not wait for it to go away. They can last for a long time, and they're not really that consequential. Fear is much more important that you're noting it when it comes but again it shouldn't last long so once it's gone you can even just go back to the rising and falling how does one begin to experience and understand emptiness well emptiness in theravada buddhism means empty of self so you understand that when you see that experiences arise and cease. And, um, how do you begin to do it? You begin to practice according to the booklet. So read our booklet. You can do our at-home course. And you'll begin to see the emptiness of experiences, that they're empty of self. There's no entity there. there there's just a moment of experience that arises and ceases. How does one know where they are on the scale between shamatha and vipassana? Right. Well, these two words, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you everything you need to know about the relationship between these two words, the basics anyway. Uh, first of all, let's start at the fact that they are words. 
samatha is the Pali word. Samatha means tranquility. Vipassana, vipassana means seeing clearly. And they are used in two distinct ways in Theravada Buddhism. The first is as qualities of mind. Samatha is a quality of mind. Vipassana is a quality of mind. And the other is as names of meditation types. Now, there's a relationship between these two uh, categories, these two meanings, of course, but there is a, a difference, a distinction. Nowhere are they used as, a, as ends of a scale. So your question is improper. Um, but, but, you know, it's good if you ask, then I can help to uh, clear things up a little bit. There is no scale between them. They are not ends of a scale. They are not opposites. They are not um, opponents, you know, like, or, or anything like that. They are either A, qualities of mind, or B, they are names of meditation types that relate to those mental qualities, obviously. So as mental qualities, samatha and vipassana are both in, in, essential to the, the attainment of enlightenment. There's no question there. Both of these are, an, are essential components. Your, your mind has to be tranquil and you have to be seen clearly. You can't do without one or the other. Uh, as far as meditation, the names of meditation types go, however, this isn't true. And this is because of the, the definition of samatha meditation and vipassana meditation. Vipassana meditation sorry. And, and this is important because it's not obvious. The, the immediate idea that you get when you hear these words is that, well, then samatha meditation is for the purpose of cultivating samatha, and vipassana meditation is for the purpose of cultivating vipassana. And just like the two qualities of mind, they are two distinct things. And that's not actually true. The way they are used, and this is according to the Orthodox Theravada, the way they are used, these terms are used, samatha kamatana, vipassana kamatana. Samatha kamatana is this is is um, differentiated. I mean, it's singled out. It's it's separated from vipassana because it is uh, unique in being unable to uh, cultivate vipassana. That's what makes them different. It's not the same the other way. Vipassana meditation is not incapable of cultivating samatha. That would be silly. You couldn't have vipassana without samatha. But the distinction is made because the point wants to be made, the, the idea is to make the point that only certain types of meditation, in fact, only Buddhist meditation, only the Buddha's teaching, allows for the attainment of vipassana. That's the point, is that there are many types of meditation out there in many different traditions, all of which, if they are proper meditation, are to be categorized only as samatha meditation. You wouldn't call them vipassana meditation. And it's not, you wouldn't call them vipassana because they cultivate samatha. You wouldn't call them vipassana because they don't allow you to cultivate vipassana. That's the point. So what, what these two words, how these two words are used is either A, as the qualities of mind, or B, as the difference between two types of meditation, one that allows vipassana and one that doesn't. That's the salient point. The um, and this 
it starts to get to an answer to the reason why you may have asked this question is the difference between these two, why there are two distinct categories of meditation and why it is that some meditations, that only a very specific type of meditation allows you to see clearly is quite simple. It's because the object is the thing that you're trying to see clearly. If your object is not real, or is not yeah is not a part of experiential reality then there's no way you could gain clarity of vision like seeing clearly the nature of reality because why the object is not real that's the point samatha meditation takes a concept as an object that's the only difference there is no scale it's not that you might slip into one or the other I mean, you may if you start practicing differently but that's the point what are you focused on is your focus on a concept like a, a candle flame? If you say fire, 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 I mean, what's actually happening is you're seeing some. There, there's an experience of seeing, but if you focus on the object, the fire, which you've which you've recognized in your mind, and you have a recognition in your mind, you perceive it as fire, as a thing, as an entity. That entity isn't real, and because it's not real, that's important for samatha meditation. Because the the uh, idea is to cultivate stability, satisfaction, control. I mean, that's not, I guess, not all samatha meditation is for that purpose, but that's what kind of distinguishes it. And so I, I guess you could, you could say that it has something that vipassana meditation does, and that's the intensity of the, the tranquility. If your only goal is to get gain tranquility, you can gain a much deeper sort of tranquility than you'd normally get with vipassana meditation. Not that vipassana meditation doesn't have samatha. It's just you won't get the same level because that's not the focus. Um, so vipassana meditation, on the other hand, because it focuses on ultimate reality, the experiences are going to be unpredictable, impermanent, unsatisfying, suffering, and uncontrollable, non-self. And when that, that disrupts some of the tranquility, but it also creates a much deeper, flexible, and adaptable sort of tranquility that's not dependent on an object. Like with samatha meditation, you have to focus on that object that you're good at focusing on, otherwise you're lost. With vipassana meditation, that's not the case. Anything can be taken as an object because the um, awareness is not dependent on the object. It's dependent on the the uh, or the the tranquility is dependent not on the object but on the knowledge and the, the seeing clearly that things are unsatisfying impermanent unsatisfying and, and uncontrollable it's the letting go and when you're letting go you, things don't disturb you experiences don't disturb you and so there's a, a clarity there, there sorry there's a tranquility that comes from the clarity so how does one know where they are? Really, the only answer to the that sort of question, again, is whether you're focused on a concept or whether you're focused on the actual reality. And you may not know the difference. You may not know whether, well, um, what I is what I'm focusing on ultimate reality. That takes some clarity of mind. So I'd recommend if you haven't read our booklet, read it now. Try and maybe consider doing the at-home course and you can start to get a sense of what's actually real. There is a distinction, there is a difference. Philosophically, it might seem unclear, but experientially, it's quite obvious. There's only very few things that are real, real. Everything else is just reaction, extrapolation.
When practicing, should I just note feeling? Are the differences between the senses just conceptual, especially with example experiences such as synesthesia? No, even with synesthesia, there's still distinction of senses. Like, if you hear a sound, you might also see something, but it's still seeing. Uh, I mean, it, it, it. No, you shouldn't just note feeling. You should note more, more particular than that. I mean, these things have names, and so give them names. When you see, say seeing. When you hear, say hearing. It's when you, it's just a feeling. A feeling is only, you only use for a feeling like a sensation. That's the fifth sense of the tactile sense of feeling. A feeling can also be a, a vedana, so you might feel calm, you might feel happy or pleasure, and you should note it as thus, as happy or pleasure or calm. The difference between the senses are not conceptual, they're derived, which... I guess is somewhat similar to conceptual, but that's not the important point. the The distinction is, I mean, it's reasonable enough that seeing is different from hearing. It's a different kind of experience. How do we deal with feeling low energy when we have many tasks? Well, again, it's just a feeling, so you would note that. I mean, you can note if you're tired. It may not cure the problem, but it will certainly give you a better perspective and help you be less upset and disturbed and stressed and worried. All of which tire you out, of course. So it's good if you can have a better perspective. In Majjhima Nikaya 2, it mentions abandonment of taints by restraint of the senses. I don't understand how to put this into practice. Can you give some day-to-day examples? Well, there's different, I mean, there's different ways of restraint. Um, so there's restraint through effort, restraint through ethics, restraint through mindfulness, restraint through knowledge. And restraint through sati samara, sitila samara, sati samara, samara, I think. I just had these, but um, I mean, I'll put it simply, much simpler than that is you can actively restrain the senses by not looking at things, by not listening to things, right? Try and isolate yourself. That's a fairly low level and sometimes impractical, but also ineffective. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a short-term stopgap measure. But a, a much more uh, important measure is, is sati samara, where you, through mindfulness you guard the senses. Uh, I, I mean, basically two levels. On the first level, you do, you do benefit from simplifying your life and avoiding things that you'd normally be attracted to. Uh, but then ultimately you only really heal or grow as an individual when you start to have a better relationship with them and face them and guard restrain is is also understood as guard the senses so you don't restrain yourself from seeing but you restrain the seeing to be just seeing 
you confine it so that seeing is just seeing meaning when you see something you remind yourself seeing and that is samwara because as a result no defilements arise instead of saying oh this is good you say this is seeing or this is bad or so it's just seeing I feel life keeps changing due to decisions I make. For several months, everything kept going incredibly wrong, but after handling an unrelated addiction, everything is changing. Am I imagining things? I, I really doesn't don't have much to say about exactly what you're talking about. The only thing that I would point out is when things go when things go wrong, um The, the 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 important thing is not the things going wrong it's your in your interpretation of them your reaction your uh, interaction with them and so uh everything is changing and i guess you mean in a good way um still isn't the point so i mean it's great that good things are coming to you but not really meaningful from a buddhist perspective what's meaningful is how you deal with good and bad things because on the upswing, good things can start happening to you, and then you start getting complacent. You stop practicing, you get lazy, and as a result, you do start developing bad habits again. So don't be too con don't be so concerned with things going wrong or things going right. Try and focus more on how you react to it. Now, the the I guess the other thing to say is that as you do that, and it sounds like maybe you are practicing meditation. Um, things will start to go better. You just can't depend on that. You can't start focusing on that because it makes you complacent. And and it also gives you false sense of control, like I fix things, and then next time it goes bad, you'll just try to fix it again. And you'll always be reacting rather than starting to let go. Because when things go wrong, the the only solution and the only sign that things are actually getting better is when it doesn't bother you when things go quote-unquote wrong. They no longer seem wrong to you. They just seem different when you're independent of the experiences. Should we ever attempt one-pointedness meditation on the breath or stomach without using labels? Isn't labeling merely a conceptualization of the experience itself? No, labeling is, I mean, is a mantra conceptualization of, of an experience? The mantra is a reminder. It's a, it's a tool used to focus. I mean, it, it, this kind of idea or argument m misunderstands the nature of reality. I mean, to, to, to um, answer your question as it's literally put, the answer is yes. But, or, or sorry, it's not yes, but the one-pointedness part is is correct. It's just that one-pointedness is only for a moment. Um, and, and so the noting isn't meant to conceptualize. It's meant to remind. It's meant to um, straighten the mind about the experience. Um, the, the, this idea of one-pointedness why I'm saying that that it's um it's it's wrong is because it I mean I assume what you're talking about is a one pointedness that is longer than a moment. 
right? Breath, the only one pointedness that you can have is momentary. And the noting actually helps with that. It helps you stay focused just on the experience for that one moment that it exists. And it gives you a better relationship to the experience. The other thing it does, of course, is keep the experience on the surface level so that seeing is only seeing and you're not uh, caught up in the depth of it, like what you see and the details and so on, which again is important. So, I mean, this kind of question, it kind of makes me think that you haven't really tried the the practice or, or haven't given it much of a chance because this is just a conjecture. I mean, it's wrong is the point. And anyone who's practiced mindfulness for some period of time will be able to tell you that no, it, it doesn't do what you're saying it does. So, you know, if you give it a chance, you'll maybe see that mantra meditation is very powerful. And the only difference here is that our object is uh, something real and momentary. So, when if you were to try to conceptualize it, you would you would fail because it's gone already. That's what's important to see is that it's gone already. Once you know it, it's already gone. Just seeing impermanence. When the experiences are not under our control, is it then under our control to see clearly? Is this a different thing? How can control be understood in this second context? No, it's not under our control to see clearly either. Um, and and so th this idea of control is is it's um, challenging because it the fixation on that begs, makes you ask the question, what is under my control? And that's a bad question. It's not a good question because there is no you to be under control. The whole point is there is no control. Control isn't a part of the experience. And it's not about, do I exist? Do I not exist? Those, those questions are just, I mean, and even this question is fairly speculative. That's not what you want to look at, be looking at. What you want to be looking at is seeing non-self. You don't want to have these philosophies about this is not self, that is not self. You want to actually see it and to see that things are not under your control so that you let go, so you stop trying to control. Like when you're angry, you stop trying to turn it off. When you're greedy, you stop trying to turn it off. When there's something you want, you stop trying to get it. When there's something you don't want, you stop trying to fix it. Why? Because you see that's not how it works. There's no... It's basically just an, an in imprecision and then a lack of clarity that leads us to think that we can control things and then suffer when we can't, when our expectations aren't met. But no, it's not under our control to see clearly. Our practice is to cultivate mindfulness, which evokes clarity. The seeing clearly comes by itself as a result of the mindfulness. Is it possible to verify that a being without craving does not get reborn? How can I verify it for myself? Well, I mean, the flippant answer would be, of course, to free yourself from craving, but that's obviously not what you're looking for. It's not a very useful answer. Um, 
but there is some sense that you can understand it and and really get, really uh, know this to be true, even when you still have craving, and that's by understanding the nature of craving and the nature of 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 rebirth, and rather well, not necessarily rebirth, but the nature of experience. That um, tanha bhavaya up, tanha sorry tanha pachya bhava tanha pachya upadana upadana pachya bhava sorry from craving comes clinging from clinging become from clinging comes becoming so birth and so on even in this life so the birth of of new uh karma like we we do things we we might start a new job or take out a loan or get married or or you know buy a a car or something all of these things that come from there, there are many of these things come from craving and because of the craving we create new uh, entanglements for ourselves. and this is the sort of thing that you see through the practice of mindfulness when you see that it's quite clear to you how rebirth works i mean it it's not nothing mysterious or even different of course when you die there's of course just like every other moment going to be things that you cling to think things that you crave for and as a result there's going to be more becoming that's how rebirth works so without that clinging there is no further creation there's no further cultivation Why does eating when hungry or having the motivation to teach not cause rebirth? Because they're just, well, I don't know about the motivation, but eating is just an activity. Uh, being hungry is just a physical reality. Uh, being motivated to teach I mean, motivation is just such a, a a vague word. Many motivations to teach could be um, could be very much conducive to rebirth. But teaching because someone asked you to teach isn't generally just what the person then does. If someone asks you to teach, then you then teach. I mean, the alternative would be to get angry and cruel and say, "No, I'm not going to teach you." which would, of course, be conducive to rebirth. Why do unwholesome states like anger cause rebirth, but wholesome states like compassion that arise in an arhat do not? Well, anger doesn't cause rebirth. Only tanha causes rebirth. Now, anger can be, I guess, associated with vibhava uh, tanha, the desire for something not to be but it's only that clinging that does it. Um, compassion is not clingy. Compassion doesn't have any expectations or desires or, or wants or needs. There's lots of states that don't lead to rebirth, like mindfulness, wisdom, There's lots of neutral states, neutral qualities of mind as well that aren't necessarily even wholesome that also don't lead to rebirth. It's only the 
craving. I mean, ang- which anger is very much, I mean, it's caught up in that, but anger only arises due to craving. Apologies for the grim question. A person thinks that he has a psychic power to drop someone dead and uses it on one of his parents, but the parent is not dead yet. He wants to revert it. Is there any chance to revert it given that death is for certain and eventually the parent will die? Is the person guilty even after the parent dies a natural death? Is such a person hell-bound even if such an act is carried out unintentionally? Well, putting aside the fact that this person probably doesn't have that psychic power, I mean, it's not to say that such psychic powers don't exist, it's just 99.9% of the time when someone thinks this, they're just deluded. It's the same with any psychic power. People who think they have psychic powers are um, are mostly just deluding themselves. I mean, things like this. This is... Without without question, except in a very very exceptional case, just delusion. I mean, I don't even know if such powers even exist, but I do know that people who mistakenly think they have such powers exist aplenty. It's a common. It's a, it's a, not that uncommon actually, and I think if you were to look into psychology, you'd find that this is a thing that kids can develop the belief that they have these kind of powers and. They mistakenly use them and that sort of thing and feel bad about it afterwards. But there's lots of um, wrong wrong views, wrong beliefs. So putting that aside, though, let's ask the question. Suppose, suppose you intend for someone to die and you do something physical. Like you send them, suppose you send them poison in the mail, hoping that they eat the poison and die. And then you've sent the package to them. And then you think afterwards, I hope they don't die. And then because of that poison, they die. But you you thought to yourself, I take it back, I take it back you're still guilty of murder. That still is a horrible, horrible thing you did and unfortunately breaks the first precept. It also is considered anantariya kamma, meaning technically, I mean, according to the Orthodox, which you know may not be as ironclad as it sounds, but it leads you to hell in the next life. So we'll, get, we'll come back to that. The other, the other, another question would be, and this maybe will give you a help, help you with your answer, Suppose you sent um, ra- you sent poison to the person, hoping that they would eat it, and then you said, "Oh, I hope they don't eat it," and you took it back, and then they didn't eat it, but then they died of something completely unrelated. Of course, then you wouldn't be um, culpable for murder. You wouldn't be breaking the precept, and it wouldn't be any offense whatsoever. It would be unwholesome still, that first initial desire and the actual action you took to try to kill them. Oh, it's still a very bad thing, but you didn't succeed, so you're kind of lucky in that regard. 
And that sort of sounds like the question here. You made a wish for them to die. You probably didn't have that power to make them die. And if they die of something unrelated to you making that wish, which is most likely going to happen, I mean, it's it's for sure they're going to die, but most likely th their death will have nothing to do with, well, will most likely their death will not be directly because of your thought. And why I phrase it like that is because, hey, maybe this a person makes this thought and then they come and check on them and see, did they die yet? And they're very, very harsh and, and mean to them. And the person dies of a heart attack because the person was so mean and harsh, not because they made the wish. So, so the point is that death is and reality is complicated, and you making that wish is going to change your is going to corrupt your mind, and your relationship to them is going to suffer. And suppose you even take it back, and that, I'm probably torturing you with this sort of conjecture, but it's important that we flesh this out before we get to some of the more uh, positive. Uh, conclusions. The negative side is that um, even you worrying about are they going to die will affect your relationship, and it will stress them when they when they sense how stressed you are. It will make life harder on them, and it could hurt them. It could even lead them to to die. You know, if they have a heart attack or if they have a heart condition, and then you add stress because of the worry that you have over this question, even though you're you've given it up, right? That could hurt them. That could harm them. The point being, of all of this, and it's it's scary, and it might be uh, unpleasant to hear this. The point is that um, we are our state of mind is the most important thing, and our states of mind are constantly affecting the world around us. And the only reason why we want to kill someone in the first place is, of course, because of the state of mind. So the best thing I can offer to someone who actually is, is, in, is invested in this question is to begin to change their mind. You know, just because you decide to do something or decide against something isn't, isn't, going, it, it isn't the most important thing. It isn't the defining factor in what happens to you in the future. The defining factor will be your state, your quality of mind, which, can only, which is much deeper than a decision. What led to wanting to kill your parents in the first place? Deciding to kill your parents or a parent. So, and and what leads you to hell ultimately? I mean, whether whether the answer to your question is yes or no, um, doesn't isn't the most important thing. If you're very angry and spiteful, or even if you're afraid or feel guilty about the bad things you've done, and you haven't resolved and let go of these things in your mind still very easy to go to hell. And right, and the other positive thing I would say, that wasn't very positive, but the positive side is that you, through mindfulness, you don't have to worry about such things. But the other part of that is that uh, even a person who goes to hell uh, isn't doomed. And so still, the best thing for you is not to worry. I mean, absolutely the best thing for you is to stop worrying about whether you're bound for hell. Stop worrying about things you've already done. And start asking deeper questions like, why do I why did I give rise to that? And learn about how your mind works. 
Because once you've done that, I mean, first of all, it generally frees you from the potential to go to hell. But even if you do end up in hell, it's not very long. And there's a story of a very devout and accomplished lay Buddhist woman, queen, who went to hell for seven days. And then after the seven days in hell, she went to heaven because of all the good she had done and all the purity of mind she had cultivated. So if, on the other hand, you're obsessing over it, it'll just make it worse. If you if you neglect to do good deeds and to purify your mind here and now, yeah, it just makes any doom that you might have worse and more likely to be unpleasant. Thank you, Bhante, for taking the extra time to answer that question. We've crossed the hour and have presented everything we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you all for your questions. I hope the answers were helpful. Thank you, Chris and Jim, for your help. Of course. May everyone find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.